In the midst of crazy busyness throughout the week, it is really a wonderful gift to come in and just have some some peace and some silence. Uh, so thanks for delivering that team, and thanks for introducing us to that. Hey, uh, we are really, really privileged to have Carrie Bender with us again today. He has spoken to us a few times over the last couple of, or I guess the last year or so, and just becoming a good friend of ours as a community of faith. Carrie and I get to work together, and so uh, I get to hear his insight on things quite often and want to get him in front of you as often as we can. Uh, for the better part of a decade, Carrie pastored an urban church in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and did an incredible job there. So uh, we are really, really uh, privileged to have him with us today because in the presence of lots of voices, there is wisdom. Amen? So would you uh, give a warm welcome to my friend and yours, Carrie Bender. Thanks a lot. I just want to say that I I do feel very welcome, particularly because of uh, Kelvin's hat. Um, I'm no fan of San Francisco, by the way. But uh, I cheer for the Vikings or who's ever playing against Green Bay. And uh, so today, it's a very, it's a good, it's a good hat. So good. Thanks so much for, uh, for letting me come and share the word today. I, um, I, I did, I pastored for, for about 12 years. Um, love sharing the word of God, love preaching. My congregation used to laugh at me because just about every, uh, every Sunday, I would, uh, I would get up and I would say, this is one of my favorite texts, Right. I, um, I, I really do. I, I love the Bible. I remember being like six or seven years old thinking if I would preach this text, this is what I would say. I just really am that geeky. I thought all six or seven-year-olds thought that way. And, um, but but I, have to, I have to confess to you do, uh, something to you today. We're, uh, the, the text for today is from Genesis chapter 22. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to that text. And I just have to tell you, I, um, I hate this text. I, um, I don't like it. Um, it is probably, there are a handful of texts in Scripture that I'm not a big fan of. And, um, and I, I thought about this quite a bit this week. I think that this tops the list um, of texts that I just, I just, don't, I just don't like. Um, capturing why that is was one of the great um, philosopher theologians of the 20th and 21st century, um, a man uh, that many of you know, um, Bob Dylan. And uh, he captured my dislike of this text in a song called Highway 61 Revisited, where Bob said um, well, it, it, something like this. God said, Abraham, kill me a son. Abraham said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abraham said, what? Abraham doesn't say what. But Dylan captures the pain of this text, Right? It's the word that all of us ask, even, even when Abraham responds positively to God. It just makes Dylan's question, what, all the more profound. It makes our discomfort with the text, our, our disdain, if, at least for me, of this text, even more, more pronounced. This is, this is a brutal story. It is an awful story. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, or if you're using uh, the U version, um, you can turn your Bible on. If you would stand with me as, um, as we read the text for this morning. 
Sometime later, God tested Abram's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey. I think I just messed up. This is me trying to use an app that I haven't used before. There we go. Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father... Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld your son from me, even your your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading and the proclamation of your word today. Father, we pray that... um, that you will allow it to transform us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we admit that there are, at times, things difficult to understand, and so um, we submit ourselves to you and to your word. Father, we pray that, um, that the same Spirit that inspired this word to be written um, would enlighten it to us today. We pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the word which became flesh and dwells among us even today. In his name, amen. You may be seated. This is a, it's a brutal story and an awful story. One of my favorite artists is a, is a guy named Rembrandt. I love his prodigal son. What, what um, Rembrandt is able to do with light is just amazing. Uh, Rembrandt painted a painting called The Sacrifice of Isaac. This is, uh, this is that image. Um, I, I showed this picture to my wife and said, um, who's, who's not here today, our dog had a little procedure done um, uh, this weekend, and so he's, uh, he needs to be at home, somebody watching him, he's got the cone of shame on. 
and um, he, he somehow works his bottom jaw outside of the cone of shame and then has it caught in his mouth. And so somebody needs to be with him at all times. So I told Stace, go preach. I don't like the text anyway. She said, nope, not doing that. And so I did show her this, this picture, and I said, Stace, what do you think of uh, Rembrandt's sacrifice of Isaac? Uh, do, you think that, do you think I can show it? And she looks at me and she goes, that's brutal. She's like, send it to Stu and uh, see, what, see what Stu said. And, uh, and Stu said, put it up there. And so here it is. But, but, but it's that type of text, right, that, that, that we're concerned about, uh, we're concerned about, uh, about an image like this, that, that it could uh, potentially trigger something. It's a, it's a tremendously violent, brutal, awful, awful story. God, uh, the, the writer of this text, um, tells us that uh, in, in verse 2 that, that, um, that he tells Abraham to go to a mountain that he will show him. It, it hearkens us back to Genesis chapter 12, the first time that, that God interacts with Abraham. When, when God interacts with Abraham for the first time, he says to Abraham, uh, leave, uh, leave Ur, the, this land of the Chaldeans. I will uh, take you to a land that I will show you. This was to be, this is the, the promised land, this amazing thing, this journey that, that God sets Abraham on. And the, the writer of this text wants us to hearken back to that. He wants us to recall everything that God had promised to Abraham. He wants us to know the, the relationship that Abraham had had, everything that was promised to him, that God had promised Abraham beginning in in Genesis chapter 12 and leading up to this point in Genesis chapter 22, that God had promised Abraham that God would bless him. And not only that God would bless him, but that, that he would take this man and this wife, Abraham and Sarah, who had no children, and from them he would make a great nation. And that those people, that nation, was to be a blessing to everyone the writer of this story wants us to remember the promises that God had made to Abraham, the goodness of who this God is, the, the blessing and the promise above all of these promises, the promise that God gives to Abraham that I will give you a son, Isaac. Isaac was to be the answer to all of the prayers. He was to be the beginning of this people belonging to God. He, Isaac, was was the promised one, the, the, the one who would bless all nations, that, that through Isaac, everyone on earth, every nation would be blessed. Isaac was the one who was promised, the one who would bring blessing not only to Abraham, but to all people. And from Genesis 12 to all of a sudden in Genesis 22, this, this dream of blessing turns in not to a dream, but a nightmare, a nightmare of, of just brutal awfulness. God, God says, Abraham, kill me a son. Abe says, man, you must be putting me on. God says, no. And all of us reading this text, feeling the weight of this, have to say, what? Are you kidding me? It is a it is a brutal text. How can this be? This all seems so wrong, so brutal, so awful. But Abraham begins this journey. Abraham begins this journey, this, 
this nightmare, if you will, with Isaac and with, with two servants. And they, they, go, they go to a mountain. And as Abraham sees it from a distance, the, the, the language is so beautiful for such an ugly, such an ugly text. As the mountain's still far off, Abraham says to his servants, he says, wait here, stay with the donkey. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and we will come right back. Abraham says to these servants, stay here with the donkey. Isaac and I will go off. We will worship the Lord. We will worship God. And we will be right back. What, what is Abraham saying here? Is, it, is, is he lying? Is he, is he lying to these servants in his saying that we will be right back? Is in the back of Abraham's mind, I just don't know if I can do it. Is there willful disobedience? Or is there in Abraham's statement a hope against hope that the story isn't as awful, isn't as painful as he thinks it might be? It says that Abraham placed the wood on Isaac's shoulders and they head off. The promised one, Isaac. The blessing of all nations. Carrying the means of his own death. Carrying wood upon his back. Up a hill. How can this be? This is so wrong. It is so brutal. It is so awful. The New Living Translation that we read doesn't quite capture the, the language in verse 6, but it, it recaptures it in verse 8 when it says that they, they went on both together. There is a, a sense that, that they, these two individuals individually go on up the mountain. They go up individually together. Father and Son in unity, and yet a distinct separation. There is a loneliness in their togetherness. A sense between the two of them that there is something wrong, something foreboding, something awful about to happen. Isaac is a, a mere boy, and I, I think he wants to break the tension. He, he recognizes that there isn't something quite right. He recognizes the, the tension in the room. I have a, a daughter, her name is Elizabeth, and um, when she was uh, nine or ten years old, we got a beagle. And um, Beth named that beagle Bagel. So we had Beagle the Bagel. And um, great, great dog. But one of the things that we didn't know about beagles when we got them is that beagles don't, uh, don't listen at all. They're, they're, just not, uh, they're just not wired that way. Um, beagles are made to chase things, regardless of what's going on around them. They become single-minded. And so we had discovered this, and so I had, I had told our daughter, Beth, um, Beth, when you, when you take Bagel for a walk, you need to make sure that you lock the gate um, before you take him off the leash. She was great about it. But one Sunday, we were going to go to a, uh, a football game, a Minnesota Gophers football game uh, after church on Sunday. We knew that we were going to miss uh, kickoff, but we wanted to get there as quickly as possible. But Beth hadn't watched her dog before church, and one of the requirements of Beth having the dog was that she promised to walk him twice a day. 
And so I said, Beth, when we get home from church, you, gotta, you, have, to, you have to walk bagel before we can leave. She said, okay, it was just going to be the two of us uh, going to the game together. And um, so we come home, she walk, walks bagel, and I'm looking out, uh, I'm looking out the, the porch window, and I see Beth come in and bend down with the gate still open, unleashing the dog. And just like that, um, Bagel noticed a squirrel in the front yard, and he hit that gate and was gone. And it's just running. And Beth is chasing after him, and I come out, and I'm chasing after him. I catch up with Beth, and I'm like, Beth, you have to run back and get mom, get the car, and, and, and we're going to have to try to get the dog. And he just trees one squirrel, then sees another squirrel and chases that one, trees that. He's just running down as fast as he can. I'm running as fast as I can, which isn't quite it's not very fast, but I'm, I'm running to, to catch up with this dog. Stace comes along uh, side of me in the car. I get in the car. We're driving down. I said, Stace, you need to drive, get two blocks ahead, come back the other direction, and we'll try to catch him. I'm going to jump out of the car. So with the car still moving, I get out of the car, and I'm chasing the dog down the street. Now, I grew up on a farm, and so there's this moment when you're chasing an animal, and, and, uh, and they're about to cut back and run, that you can, you can kind of sense it. They slow just for a second, and they're going to cut back and run. So I'm watching the dog. I'm running in the street. He's running on the grass, and he's like, this is the best, right? And I'm dying. And he's about to cut back, and I lunge for him and land on him, and all you hear is this, right? And uh, get the dog, put him in the car. Stace comes pick me up, put him in the car. We get back. We put the dog in his kennel, and Beth isn't saying a word. Like, she knows there's this tension. There's something wrong. There's something foreboding, right? And we get in the car, and we start driving uh, towards the Metrodome, which is where, uh, where the Gophers played at that, at that time. And we're driving there just in utter silence. And there's just, there's something wrong. But Beth, being young, wants to cut the silence. And she says, you know, Dad, if we would let Bagel out once a week, you would get in really good shape. <laughs> and I just looked at her like, you have to be kidding me. I didn't say anything. And she looks and she goes, Dad, someday we're going to laugh about this. And I said, Beth, that's probably true, but it's not going to be today. Kids, they, they want to break the tension. Isaac senses that there's something wrong. There's something foreboding, something awful. And Isaac literally says, Father. And, and Abraham says, yes, my son. In the, the language, you, you get the sense of this closeness and yet this separation between them. And Isaac literally says, I see. I see the wood. I see the fire. But where is the lamb? I see the fire. I, I see the wood. But I, I don't see the lamb. And Abraham, Abraham says, Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh. The God who sees, sees. The God who will be seen, will be seen. The God who will see to it, will see to it. The phrase that Abraham uses here is one that, in English, it's difficult to capture it with just one phrase. Many times we, we translate it, many of the translations translate it, 
that God will provide. But, but it, it literally means God will see to it or that, that God sees, God knows, God will be seen. It's all of these things wrapped up. It is, it is in this moment that this text becomes clear. God sees, God is seen, and God will see to it. He will provide. This is the defining moment in this story. It is the defining moment in the story. It is from this statement that the place that they're at receives its name. Later in the text, at the, at the end of the passage that we read, it says that this place, Mount Moriah, is still known by this name to this day. The place where God sees. God will be seen. God will see to it. God will provide. Abraham knew that in the midst, in the midst of this monstrous story, this awful story, Abraham knew that God was there. He sees. He would be seen. And he would see to it. This is Abraham's faith in God bleeding through the pages of this story. The writer of the the New Testament book, Hebrews, puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was unable to have a child, though she was barren and was too old. She was able to have a child. She believed that God would keep his promise, and so a whole nation came from this one man who is as good as dead. A nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing that God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they would have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he was prepared, for he has prepared a city for them. And it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Abraham was looking forward to something, a promise. A promise yet unfulfilled, a promise of God's provision. A a promise that that God sees, that, that God will show up, that he will be seen the promise that he will see to it, that he will provide. A promise that Abraham and all those in the Old Testament looked forward to, a promise that is fulfilled 
in another son, in only begotten, walking up a hill with wood that would be the means of his death upon his back. The, the promise, the, the answer to the promise of God's provision is, is Jesus, is the salvation that he brings through his death and through his resurrection. Now, I have to be, I have to be honest. I, I knew that before I started reading the text. Most of us, most of us did, that, that it's, God's, it's God's promise of provision that, that, that brings meaning to this text, but I still hate this story. I still don't like it. And if we're honest with ourselves, I, I think all of us would say that. We want the story to be different. We, we don't want Abraham and Isaac to go there. I think about the next time Abraham said to Isaac, Isaac, let's go out into the wilderness. Let's go camping. I mean, Isaac must have looked at him like, man, you must be kidding me. Somehow, I think Sarah must have heard about this. The distance that that must have put between Abraham and Sarah. Isaac. The, the pain of that. Abraham always looking at his son and thinking how close he came. I just, I don't like the story. The, the, fact, that, the fact that God is present in, in the midst of it doesn't make it a good story. It doesn't make it not awful or not brutal. But God's presence in the midst of it somehow provides redemption for the awfulness of it. You see, that, that God will see, that God will be seen, that God will provide. God's, God's most profound provision is the promise of his presence. God's most profound provision is his promised presence with us. That, that, that he is in the midst of our awful stories. That he is in the midst of our suffering. God himself looking down from above, even though he is the one that that, that sits above it, he recognizes the awfulness of it. You hear it in his voice when he says in verse, the beginning of the story, Abraham. But here he calls out, Abraham, Abraham. In desperation with an exclamation point twice, he calls to Abraham telling him not to hurt his son. On that day, a ram was provided. But on the most important day of human history, his son he himself, God, shows up in a scene and provides and sees to it. And this isn't some New Testament idea of Paul or the writer of Hebrews or the early church looking back on this story. Don't think that for a minute. This is who God has always been. It is the God who Abraham knows him to be. And we know that from Quite honestly, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but one of the strangest. It's in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, there's this, this strange story. I, 
I won't read it to you. I'll just tell you about it. But I, I would encourage you to, uh, to go back later today and read the story. God promises Abraham. He reiterates all these promises that he's made to Abraham in chapter 12. That he's going to do all these things. That he's going to bless him. That he's going to provide a son. That all nations will be blessed. That he will give him a place to live. And then God says to Abraham, I, I, this is what I want you to do. I want you, I want you to get a bull, and I want you to get a ram, and I want you to get a couple of birds, and I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to lay them out on the ground, right? Which is just kind of, like, bizarre, right? And for us kind of 21st century readers, we're reading the story and going, come on, this sounds kind of strange and gross. Um, but Abraham does it, and he lays out these animals. Now, to the reader... To the first readers of this text, they would get what's going on here. You see, God is making a covenant with Abraham. Throughout the Old Testament, God creates these covenants. And actually, to make a covenant in the Old Testament, the word that's actually used is the same word is to cut. So you don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And you cut a covenant because whenever you make a covenant, there's blood involved with it. And so God is about to cut a covenant with Abraham and tells him to lay out these animals. Now, to the, the readers of the text the, the first time, they would know exactly what's going to happen. God, who is the king, the, the master of this covenant, the one who's, who's kind of laying it all out, is going to say to Abraham, Abraham, this is what I want you to do. I want you to walk from snout to tail of these animals. And in doing that, you're sealing the covenant. You're saying that if you can't hold up your end of the bargain because I'm the king, I'm the master here, what I want you to know is that you're going to be broken. Like these animals that are cut, you will be cut, you will be broken. And you will, in a sense, literally pass through them from snout to tail again as the beasts of the field eat what's left of you because of my wrath. This is what the, the readers, they would, they would know that this is coming. But something amazing happens. It says that, that it becomes dark and Abraham falls into a dream. And in his dream, he sees a pot of smoke and a pot of fire pass through these animals. Now, in case, you, in case you've missed what's going on in the Old Testament, fire and smoke are always symbols of who God is. When God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, he leads them by day by a pillar of smoke and by night a pillar of fire. When the tabernacle is built, God rests upon it as a, a, a cloud of smoke that glows at night, a fire. Fire and smoke are symbols of God's presence throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes and rests upon the apostles as flames above their heads. God's presence, God's spirit is symbolized in this fire and the smoke. There's something amazing going on in Genesis chapter 15 because God is saying if if this covenant is broken, if, if for some reason you can't hold up your end of the bargain, that you will be a blessing and that through you, you will be blessed, I, I want to let you know I will be the one who is broken. I will be the one who is killed. I will be the one who sacrifices myself. You see, God, God sees. God will be seen. He will show up. And God will see to it. He will provide. Maybe not in the way that we want, but God sees. God sees the mess that you're in. 
God sees your story. God doesn't promise us perfect marriages or perfect relationships with our parents or our children. But God promises us that, that in the midst of that, he's with us. That is his promise. His greatest provision is the promise of his presence with us. That he's there. God doesn't promise beautiful stories. But he promises to be with us in the midst of our most awful stories. Our most difficult circumstances. God promises us that there's another man in the fire. That he is with us. That he is with us in the fire and in the water holding back the seas. Let me close with just another story about my daughter, Beth. Um, when Beth was born, she was a month premature. And um, because of that, she developed a respiratory virus. And um, we had to take Beth back, uh, had to take Beth back to the hospital after she was just a few months old. And, uh, and they put her in one of those, uh, one of those um, plastic tent things, you know, kind of the, the big bubbles, right? Beth was amazing. Beth was... Beth was not a crier. She was unbelievably content most of the time. But as she would lay in that, in that tent all alone, there were, times that, um, there were times that she would begin to cry. I think she felt alone. I, she didn't know what was going on. The doctors and the nurses told me that I, I couldn't take her out of the tent. And there was no way to explain to her, right, uh, just a, a couple month old, why she needed to be there, what was going on that she didn't have to be afraid, she didn't have to be scared. All I could do was uh, unzip the bottom of that tent three or four inches, and I would unzip that tent, and I would reach my hand in and allow her to hold on to it, to hold on to my finger, so that she would know that there is someone there. There is someone who sees. There is someone who will be seen. And there is someone who will see to it. In a very real sense, that is what God has done for us. We, we live in a very broken world. Uh, we, we live in a broken world that a thousand times again, we would choose the same brokenness over and over and over again. And so what God does is God enters into that life with us through the person of Jesus Christ. Because he sees, and he will be seen, and he will see to it. And he gives us a hand to hold on to. Not promising us beautiful stories all the time, but promising us that whatever story we're in, he's with us. Because God's most profound provision, God's most profound provision is the promise of his presence with us in whatever story we find ourselves in the midst of. I know it doesn't make the stories good, but it does provide redemption in the midst of I love the fact that you guys did Silence and Solitude. Um, the, the verse, uh, the, the last verse of the text from last week I, has been rolling around in my mind over and over again from Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. I was thinking, what's the application of a text like this? Maybe the application of a text like this is just that. Just, just be still. Just find rest in God's faithfulness. Find rest in God's promises. Find rest in knowing that he sees you. He sees your story. He sees your marriage. He sees your relationship with your children. 
He sees your job. He sees the difficulties that you have. And he will be seen if we look for him. And he will see to it. This week, may you find rest in him. May you be quiet knowing that he is God. Knowing that he sees. That he will be seen. And that he will see to it. For the most profound, the most profound of his provision is the promise of his presence with you in the midst of your stories. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. God, we thank you for the beautiful stories. We thank you for the story of Christmas that we're entering into that season so quickly. We thank you for the beautiful story of the empty tomb. We thank you for beautiful stories like the wedding in Canaan, stories of victory like David and Goliath, but Father, we also thank you for the difficult stories, for the lion's dens, for the giants, for the fires that we walk through, even for the story of Abraham and Isaac, that in the midst of it, you were there. You see, you will be seen, and you will see too. Thank you for the promise of your presence. Thank you for your provision. Yahweh, the Lord will provide.